Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 182 for July, July 1st, July 1st. 2020. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that is located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous and kind of rainy Missoula, Montana. And here with me, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? I am great, Jason. And we have missed a week. And I think we have probably set a record for maximum number of links. But we have to have some updates that are non-tech related. So I understand air conditioning is a nice thing for you this summer. Yes, uh, my wife and I decided to take to take part of our stimulus check and some money we've been saving up for home improvements and dedicate it to uh, 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 central air in our home. And although we haven't needed it for the last couple of days because it's been uh, delightfully cool and rainy here, we figure if we're going to be stuck in our house, which we're probably going to be for uh, quite some time, uh, but more importantly, that because Montana tends to get a pretty regular fire season now, you know, we we're doing just fine, open up the windows at night and cooling off the house, but you can't do that. If the state's on fire. So we've decided that in deference to us uh, not being able to travel for a long time, and then also the fact that we could be stuck in here in, in August and September during fire season, we have now sporting central air, which is super duper awesome. Yeah, well, you are not my my first uh, Rocky Mountain friend or acquaintance that I have known in the last, you know, few years who, who have done that with uh the, the changing climates as we have it. So yeah. I'm glad that uh, you're getting to enjoy that. And I'm also glad to hear that Missoula is getting rain. Do you still have folks howl at 9 p.m. or is that subsided? I, you know, last week I think I heard an hour, like a really faint howl in the distance, but that has, has somewhat left. Although I have to say the down, the bad news here is that uh, Montana's trending upward again in COVID cases. So we had, we had flattened the curve to zero. There was a nine day period where we had no cases and it's, Definitely trending upward here in the state. We've had, um, I think 35 cases in Missoula County in the last, uh, 48 hours, which, um, I think our original number when, uh, before we did the shutdown, I think we were a total of like 60, but we're definitely trending upward. We hit a thousand cases in Montana. I think we're still in the bottom four, uh, in the United States when it comes to, um, uh, uh, total number of cases and then per capita, we have just over a million people. So that's one in a thousand people in Montana. That's not a super huge number, but we're definitely starting to see as we move into phases of reopening that, uh, there's certainly going to be some reconsideration of complete reopening. And as I'm sure is true of schools in Oklahoma uh, and across the United States, you know, discussions are ongoing about what open school looks like this fall. Um, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there were a couple of schools in Montana that did open up at the end of the school year. In fact, uh, the national media was portraying it as Montana had the first schools open. These were counties that had no cases and, uh, you know, were able to enforce pretty meaningful social distancing. So it was fine. But, um, you know, I am privy to uh, first, second, and third-hand conversations about this, and I just know how tough these conversations are, and my... Um, 
I guess my uh, thanks go out to the teachers, administrators, paraprofessionals, uh, uh, union leaders, everyone that's part of these discussions uh, and, and, you know, the extraordinary hours and time you're putting in, because I know it's I know the discussions are are just uh, incredibly weighty. And at the same time, I imagine a bit heart wrenching because what we all want to do is get back to normal so we can get back to the job of educating kids, which is why we do this stuff in the first place. Well, Peggy, uh, George is in our chat room and she's reminding us that uh, Arizona is trending up. And um, we actually have, uh, we have not known personally that many people who have tested positive. We, we did have a couple students part of a summer camp here in the last couple of weeks. And then another student at our school who is on our street. Uh, we talked, we went on a walk today after lunch and talked to his mother uh, who just, who just got tested and hasn't found out yet, but he only had symptoms for about three days, but um, you know, it's uh, it's, it's hitting home. She knew somebody actually, her sister, I think is a doctor in Arizona. And she, what her sister had told her was that they only had either it was in their, in their city or, it sounded like it was the state, but they were 50, 50 beds short of not having any more ICU beds. And so anyway, things and that a, a risk to one state is potentially a risk to all of us. And so, yeah, it is a challenging time. And we've had a number of public schools, Oklahoma City Public, which is, you know, one of the two largest in the state with 45 something thousand, I think, kids. Um and then Edmond, which is just north of us, where we go to church, and then Deer Creek is to the northwest. They've all announced uh, plans. They're all giving older students an option if they want to go remote. And, um, and uh, they're, they're, you know, not all uniform, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in, in conversations, and we're about to, I think, next week have a town hall with all of our faculty and staff and then town halls with parents at the end of the month. And so anyway, it's, uh, it is tough because we we're, we just, we got to remain flexible. So on the good side, uh, and we will get to our, our agenda tonight. Um, I've had a chance to just be in some great professional development. I've got to write a blog yeah. post because the last uh, three days, there's this group called the Malone Network and it's out of Stanford. We're the only school in Oklahoma that is a, a partner to it. They do very advanced high school courses that you just, you know, can't offer at your, at your school, probably no matter, you know, where you're, where you are because they're so specialized, but they're a hybrid blend of face to face video conference and online. And then they open up their conference to any, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's just any teacher at the partner schools. Just fantastic. I mean, this, this has been for sure, maybe the Moodle moot or the, yeah, the, the Montana, uh, Moodle moot will, will, uh, surpass even these experiences. But, uh, this has been the best virtual conference I've ever been a part of. A lot of it has to do with the people in the room. You know, it hasn't been yeah. super complicated. We've had good topics. We've had great facilitators, but you know, it's like I've, you know, I've been to Arizona where, where Peggy is to some conferences that Tony Vincent put on the Miami device conferences. Uh, sometimes when you just, you know, you've got a lot of passionate and innovative people in the room and also people willing to share, you know, and telling right. about what worked, what didn't work. Um, Man, there's some there's some amazing things that have just come out for Google Meet. You know, anyway, I just right. found out this last the last two days. So it's it is a tough time. We are obviously wanting to get back to quote normal. Uh, newsflash: that's not going to be happening in August. Right. And so yeah. we we uh, we need to continue honing our skills and continue 
collaborating and being connected educators and finding ways that we're going to, to be reaching our right. students and supporting our teachers and supporting wellness as you, sir, have been a main advocate for. Um, all those things are important. Yep. Let me make one other note about conferences. Um, I'm actually probably going to attend a couple conferences that I would never be able to secure funding for, um, uh, including a couple related to my, my, my initial passion, passion, which is the teaching of social studies. Do look out for that because my guess is, is that a lot of professional development dollars that were going to things like travel to professional development and conferences uh, obviously is not getting spent. And I'm sure that there's no, uh, you know, there's no lack of competition in your district for dollars at this point in light of the expenses that schools are facing to deal with a larger pandemic. But um, there are two conferences. There's just no scenario I would be able to attend otherwise. It's just, it's not enough. Or it's not close enough to my day-to-day job. And, you know, as a state uh, state agency, you know, we are very careful to to keep travel to a, a relative minimum uh, and to the core of my job. But I am going to probably attend a conference in uh, August and uh, one in, in October, uh, one in November. These are conferences that have cost me easily over over $2,000 to go to and then attend, but one of them is $75 in uh, August and another one is, I think, is is, is 50 bucks in, in October. So something to keep in mind that if there is an upside, a lot of conferences are experimenting with virtual conferences, um, which, you know, uh, obviously is necessary in a lot of cases uh, during this time, but that might be an opportunity for you to expose yourself to new voices. And that's something that I'm particularly interested in that uh, the last thing I want to end up in is a kind of ed ed uh, echo chamber because there are a lot of them that exist and um you know get out there learn something new absolutely well hey we have done a little bit longer on our introductions but we've we've missed each other we haven't been together for two whole weeks folks it's just it's been tough but we've survived so Dr. Neifer, in addition to pontificating about uh, personal news, weather, and COVID-related issues, I heard a rumor that we were going to talk about some news. How does this thing work on EdTech Situation Room? Well, Wes and I collect uh, links uh, throughout our, our week of reading. And um, uh, this week, it's funny because I, when I was putting links in for today's show, I was thinking these are a lot of Wes-like links that I'm sharing this week as opposed to I Define tend to be on. a Wes-like link. Well, that, that are thinking about tech uh, 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 more philosophically than just devices, right? Like that are asking you to think deeper about the device. And um, they were very Wes-like links this week. And so I, and, and in fact, I even, I even found an article on CRISPR, and I thought, I'm like, this is a West Fryer article if I've ever seen one. But um, all of our links are at edtechsr.com. I'm almost 100% sure we're not even going to come close to, to, to getting through the topics for this week. So if you're interested in what else was on our minds for this week, uh, you can certainly go there and check out links. And then I'm sure that some of these topics will make it into next week's show uh, because they're, the good news is about this time, and maybe this is bad news according to the article I want to start off with tonight, uh, that there's no shortage of news right now. So plenty of things to talk about. So Wes, if you don't mind, I want to start off with an article that uh, I, I just found this morning. It was a shared, it was trending on Twitter for a while this morning, and I happened to click on it uh, early AM, and it blew my mind because it really relates to a lot of topics we've been talking about here on the podcast, but also some really deep 
feelings I've been feeling about media, media literacy, news. Um, but uh, this is from uh, One Zero, which is a publication hosted on Medium. And this is by Eric Ravenscraft, who is a, a relatively prominent voice in, in tech journalism. And he wrote an article on June 28th called Our Ability to Process Information is Reaching a Critical Limit. And um, really, really, really good. It basically comes down to that um, we are in an era where um, there is so much news available that we have uh, uh, we have endless choices to be able to acquire information, and that's creating a number of different, probably negative effects on our ability to truly find understanding, including the fact that people are purposely disengaging from news because it's too much. And in fact, the words too much have echoed in my head really a lot in the last, uh, uh, well, really eight to 10 weeks, that as more happens and as we clearly have both uh systemic and 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 long-term issues we need to deal with while at the same time dealing with the acute issue of a pandemic it, it, there's extraordinary uh, things going on but the second piece of this is is that the sheer amount of news that exists means that oftentimes we aren't reading articles very deeply we're not critically analyzing those articles very deeply and then more importantly um, because it's it's hard to find the difference between news and opinion sometimes. That line is blurry at best, especially in an era where there's such extraordinarily diverse sources, many of which don't follow any journalistic ethics, which aren't newspapers, aren't journalism, their opinion, um, then oftentimes anything that disagrees with our already closely held views is dismissed as fake or, 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 or opinion news as opposed to fact. So um, I guess... Uh, before I toss it over to you, uh, Wes, uh, this is something I've been thinking about personally for a very long time in context of myself, because as a little kid, I was a, I was a news junkie, right? Like I loved reading the newspaper. I loved watching news. It's part of the reason why I became a social studies teacher. It was it kind of integrated in, in my piece. I became a, a high school and college debater and eventually a high school debate coach in part of that love. And I remember one time as, as a little kid, I was in Helena, uh, which is where I went to college. Uh, there was a summer camp there uh, at uh, my eventual college, which was Carroll College in Helena. And there used to be a little tiny newsstand in downtown Helena um, that sold newspapers and magazines. And it was a, a you know little newsstand store. And I remember one time I bought a six-day-old uh, issue of the Chicago Tribune because I had never seen the Chicago Tribune before. And it was thick, right? Like the good old days when the Sunday paper was you know, an inch and a half thick and you could grab the newspaper. And I remember just being delighted by this because, you know, it's six-day-old news, but it's the Chicago Tribune, right? Like when would I have an opportunity to read the Chicago Tribune, right? And, um, you know, uh, I used to like to be able to, when the Internet first came out and news from other cities and towns and nations uh, became available to me, I would sometimes get in an internet hole where I would, you know, get spit out three days later, you know, reading English editions of Le Monde. And I, you know, it's, it, it, it's something that, that was very near and dear to me. And now I have this extraordinary number of news sources because, um, you know, that, that, that's the amount available. But as this article says, it complicates things. And by the way, there's a lot of interesting links I would consider reading the article to click on to talk about some of the research behind these phenomena. But the bottom line is, is that the sheer amount 
is creating tension with understanding. And if we are not careful about this, the, you know, extraordinary garden of, of, of news sources, which, you know, is probably less like a library and more like a rummage sale, right? Like, it's not like the, there's a library, a vetted library available to you. It's really just a pile of stuff anywhere from junk to treasure. It, it, it's starting to diminish our overall understanding of our world. So that's a lot of talking for me. Wes, I know this is something you care very passionately about because you yourself, big critic of, 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 of helping teach kids, uh, uh media literacy. Any thoughts about uh, the opening article tonight? Uh, you know, it's absolutely true. Uh, literacy continues to change. It always is changing and in flux. Uh, we need to look at the predominant tools and the predominant ways in which both we communicate and we're communicated to. Uh, this is why media literacy needs to be part of the conversation. It really in every classroom. This isn't something that, you know, waits till high school or waits to college. I'll respond with uh, an article. Uh, this is a KQED education slideshow from last night's webinar helps students fight misinformation one click at a time. Um, I'll remind everybody, I really do think that avoiding the term fake news and talking about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, those are three clarifications that are from a wonderful book that was published two months ago called You Are Here that's about the polluted information environment that we're in um, are, are, you know, good, good guidelines. I mean, truth is under siege. You know, things that were very fringe are now much more mainstream. If you've looked on the links for tonight, I mean, there's a ton of links we've got under tech correction, and a lot of those have to do with disinformation and the campaign that's on now to boycott, you know, advertising on Facebook and social media and pressure, you know, for the platforms to take action you know, on this. So I will say that, you know, media literacy, I'm, I'm excited because here the third week of July, I'll be in this, the tier two, which is second year of the Institute for Digital Literacy. Uh, it's online now. You can register. Um, I think I, it's like, it was like 400 bucks. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to ISTE, right? My, my school was going to send me to ISTE to present. In fact, I would have presented today if, uh, yeah, COVID hadn't happened, but I'm looking forward to that. And I think, um, that these conversations, you know, we, we fancy ourselves, I think on, on probably a, a leading or bleeding edge of technology with some, some respects. Some of the things that we talk about a lot, uh, are not mainstream yet but they are becoming mainstream. And so we all need better skills at filtering information. Uh, hopefully we provide that for you. That's one of the, the things I, I love about the show and doing this and, and listening to other podcasts because like all of us have an opportunity to ingest, even if it is headlines, and I agree, like let's let's read the articles, you know, let's dive into it and not just, hey, look at that headline. I'm, I'm guilty of, of sometimes sharing you know, a, a shallow, a link that I have explored on a shallow basis rather than in depth, uh, certainly. But um, we all need to to develop those trusted voices. And I think at an earlier age, to your point, we need students to understand what an op-ed is uh, and, and what a, a news source that is a mainstream media news source is. And then what's something else? Um, last comment, I I, I heard from on, on on Facebook, you know, someone um, whose name I will not disclose, but they're a, a friend of a relative who 
<laughs> was really buying into the pandemic that happened. You know, that was that fake documentary from a couple weeks ago. And it just, this person is an engineer. And I just, it really almost shatters my mind to think how intelligent these, that many people are, but they are either because they're tuning into a certain television network for news all the time. I don't know all of those dynamics, but they are living in a different a different sphere of news. And, and we talk about bubble, you know, bubbles and echo chambers and things like that. So got to help kids become critical thinkers. Got to help everybody have a better crap detector to, you know, channel Neil Postman and media literacy. It's, it's for everyone and it's for adults too. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, we will, uh, this is not the end of this conversation, certainly. And I think part of what I'm hoping that, uh, we can get to at some point, and it, it's too easy to blame this on politics. This was, this, we well predated the 2016, 2012, 2008 elections. This is not about that. I mean, it's, it's a, a symptom, uh, the, the, the kind of vitriol round that's a symptom of what's going on. It's, it's definitely not the problem. But, you know, I do think that part of the solution absolutely has to be education. And, um, you know, I won't, uh, uh, I, 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 this is not a show about the social education, social studies education. So I won't go down this rabbit hole tonight, but, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last, you know, eight weeks or so about what isn't, isn't covered in history classes. And what's interesting about that discussion to me is that I also believe what isn't and isn't covered even in regular classrooms when it comes to social studies education, uh, uh, skills, right? Like the, the common core, not the common core, the no child left behind vacation of it. Common core is a, a little bit of the issue here too, because there's been not, there's not enough attention in my mind in social studies, but the, the no child left behind a vacation of our schools, which has meant that in a lot of K five classrooms, math and math and uh, reading dominate where science and social studies are oftentimes left out completely, um, you know, because of, of uh, the hyper focus on that side of the equation, meaning that oftentimes our students enter high school and sometimes even college with dangerously low amounts of critical thinking skills as it relates to social studies and humanities. But that's neither here nor there. It's a, another symptom of a larger problem. So, Wes, is there anything else in the tech correction section you want to hit tonight? There's a lot of articles there. Uh, absolutely. I just counted. We got 11 articles. So, and we're going to, we'll talk about more than that, but we've got, you know, tech correction, Chrome OS, Google, Microsoft, media, a little about Apple. We're going to have to talk about WWDC a little bit tonight. Uh, and, you know, new uh, silicone for Max privacy. CRISPR Media Literacy Miscellaneous. So yes, oh my gosh. All right, best article that I put in under tech correction is from Wired on June 17th. It's called Facebook Groups Are Destroying America. And you may think that is a hyperbolic, um, you know, headline, but, you know, reading the article, it, it really is making a strong case. Uh, you know, last elect, last presidential election, 2016, one of the things that, that happened, um, and this was occurring before, but certain advertisements were not public. They were only seen by certain folks. And at that time, Facebook didn't have a library of political ads. And we didn't even have, you know, this movement like Twitter's block political ads. And, and we've got some, some different dynamics, uh, happening in, in part because of fear, right? By the, the platforms, they don't want to be regulated. They want to show that they're, they're taking action. 
But the point about uh, echo chambers, to tie that in, you know, once groups, this is one of the arguments that the authors make, get to a certain size in Facebook, I mean, they're saying they shouldn't be private. They should be public. And we're having lots of different groups. We talked about this on the show now years ago about how, you know, some of this, and it's not all Russia either. Let's not blame it all on politics. Let's not blame it all on Russia. But there is that, right? We had and we still have uh, groups in, in Russia and other organizations that are, that are intentionally fomenting discontent in the United States that are masquerading as, you know, uh, actors, uh, individuals who, you know, are engaging in politics here in the country and, and they're actually, you know, part of the, the Russian military or part of the Russian intelligence uh, group uh, agencies. And so this, you know, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg would like us all to believe that Facebook is just is bringing us all together in wonderful ways. And I got to say, there are a lot of wonderful ways. Like, please, let's not break. Let's not kill Twitter. I love Twitter. Twitter is so important to me. It is so huge on a daily basis for my learning. But, you know, it's also been abused in, in a lot of really, really terrible ways. And so. This is a great article on Facebook groups. And the other one that I'll point to uh, is by Kevin Rose. And if you don't read Kevin in the New York Times, man, what, what are you doing with your time? Uh, he has created this great podcast called Rabbit Hole, uh, which I absolutely think should be mandatory listening for everyone on media literacy, putting together pieces of you know, how social media and, you know, YouTube specifically has been used for disinformation. Um, I've got a link to a June 8th, 2019 article that he had called the making of a YouTube radical as well as rabbit hole. But Wes, why are you, you know, putting in a June 2019 article today on July 1st, 2020? Well, it's because we had some big bans. And so The Verge on uh, June 29th reported that YouTube banned Stefan Molyneux, David Duke, Richard Spencer, and far more for hate speech. And Stefan Molyneux, who I may regret saying his name live because, of course, our words now are transcribed live on Facebook. And this is just the nature of media now that things are being transcribed. So they're searchable, et cetera. Huge radicalizing voice for white supremacy and, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, Jews taking over the world, hate Jews, uh, hate speech, or just that whole perspective of that whole worldview. In Rabbit Hole, which is Kevin Rose's podcast, he does an interview with uh, a man who was radicalized through Molyneux's videos. And so this is good news that Facebook is taking action. Why, you might ask, Wes, is Facebook taking action? Well, uh, we've got massive, um, you know, campaigns going on. I think over 300 significant advertisers are, are pledged to stop their advertising, I think at least for a month. Um, Engadget has an article, advertisers are running from Facebook, what's next? So I think we're seeing some good dynamics. We're seeing consumers, therefore companies, you know, speak out, take action, uh, Facebook has absolutely needed to, to get some of these bad actors off of their platform. Uh, is it going to be a complete solution? No. Is it, are these steps in the right direction? Definitely. Your thoughts, Dr. Knife? Well, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I can't remember who it was. It was someone in, in the Pacific Northwest education community, but, um, this was eight, nine years ago. And he was talking about that, uh, he was running a graduate class for, he was, uh, uh, 
that not he was the not classroom facing faculty at uh, uh, a university and it, he made a very controversial move because he decided that he didn't want to bother to learn the LMS uh, at his, his, at his university. And he was running a, um, uh, uh, a graduate seminar. And he said, you know, I don't have time to deal with this. I'm just going to create a Facebook group. And he did, and it was a private group and he invited people into it. And luckily everyone in the class was on Facebook already. And he was able to run a pretty tight discussion, uh, uh board and also interact and put people in groups and, and, and engage in discussion utilizing Facebook. And the reason why I, I that stuck in my mind at that time, because like that, that's the point, right? Like it, it, all ed tech tools should be as easy as doing that, right? They should be able to, at a couple of click, create a community that is, uh, allows for thriving interaction with others. And, you know, we, we've heard a lot about the fact that, that the privacy of Facebook groups and the fact that in a lot of cases, you, uh, there can be a, a conversation going on on the platform with zero accountability to the larger public. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, it, the likelihood is, is you shut down Facebook, you know, there's, there's other platforms for this, right? But at the same time, you know, um, Facebook can't go around talking about how important democracy is and talk about being the place where people share private data and information, uh, to interact with others and then become, uh, you know, a, a meeting location for people that, that, that don't share broad American values. And I think that's a, that's, it, it's a key discussion that I think they're going to have to deal with. The virality potential of social media today and the way in which it is weaponized, meaning that topics and links are artificially boosted by algorithms, by bots, um, by, by folks spending lots and lots of money to, to do this and to get things from social media to move to mainstream media and, and to you know, basically hijack the news. Um, we're in a, yep. we're in an era. I think I wrote a post about this a while back. I like called the tyranny of current events, right? Uh, I remember when, um, Columbine happened in what, 2001, you know, it was in many ways sad that our first graders and kindergartners were scared that this thing had happened, that this horrible shooting had happened, you know, in Colorado. And we just, you know, it, in some ways you, you think back to, an earlier day when you, when current events were not a thing, but I'm, I'm glad that we have the technologies that we do. I think we live in a great day, but we live in a very challenging day. And I think that, um, you know, we each need to contend with what we're going to do individually and how we might advocate. Peggy referenced a Kara Swisher post, which I haven't read yet about leaving Facebook. Um, I love using Facebook. I love being able to converse and engage with people about usually not politics. It's usually more about food, but sometimes it is. And I have a really diverse group of folks that, yeah. that follow me. And, you know, sometimes it's been challenging, but we need to figure out how to talk with each other. We need to figure out it's, it's actually eye opening in a good way sometimes to realize how different some people are seeing the world from us. Right. One of the things I think that, you know, to me comes out of the black lives matter movement in this, this moment is, is the need for us to listen to each other and to try to develop more empathy for each other and to understand that the world that we see out of our eyes is we do, we all do not see the same things, even if we're standing side by side. And um, I think that social media continues to have tremendous promise, but we do need platforms to take responsibility. Uh, Facebook has been horrifically guilty of literally being an agent 
of disastrous, you know, violence and, and death in, in countries. Myanmar is, is one. Indonesia, I mean, other, other Philippines, maybe other, you know, East Asian countries, countries where they just haven't had folks using, you know, who, who are fluent in that language, policing the platform and they haven't had algorithms written, et cetera. So it's like right. the tools have outstripped people's abilities to control them in some ways. It's not right. a Skynet sort of thing, but it, it is definitely, you know, where even Facebook either today or yesterday was saying, you know, even though they've banned these accounts, well, there's so much content, you know, we can't, you know, take care of it all. But these egregious examples and especially, you know, these groups that become huge, um, you know, it's we, we do have to decide what it is we're going to do and how are we going to connect and how are we going to use the tools for good? Right. One of my kids. Right. When I, uh, I had I had several little conversations the last few weeks with our uh, Minecraft camp because I led a two week Minecraft camp. And I did one for elementary kids with middle and high schoolers who helped me as my moderators. And then one for middle school where the high school high schoolers were helping. And anyway, you know, just like recess, uh, if you have if you have recess, stuff's going to happen. You know, kids are going to make choices and things are going to happen. And at the end of one of these conversations was with, which was with a parent and a child afterwards, uh, which was which was not, you know, a horrible thing. But the student, you know, reminded me. I need to use my skills for good. And that's right. You do. You want to use them for good <laughs> I and, love not, that. and not for evil, you know? Right. And, yeah. So, um, well, and I'll say one last thing about Facebook, right? Like the, the problem with Facebook with me is that I'm, I'm an introverted person, right? I know it doesn't come off that way because, you know, I, I, well, I, I co-host a podcast. I speak frequently at conferences. Uh, I love speaking. Speaking's a, 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 a very, um, a fulfilling activity for me, but I'm a pretty introverted person. I don't particularly like social situations and I'm very uncomfortable in situations where I don't know very many people. And, you know, I'm stuck in my house for the next, you know, umpteen number of months and that, and I, and I'm not connected to a ton of people by a text. Um, that that's really been a lifeline for me to stay connected with family and friends during this time. Right. And I generally don't talk about, uh, 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 politics on Facebook, although I do have a couple of friends that are in academia that, that, uh, study history and politics and being connected with them on Facebook has been amazing because I get commentary from, you know, a professor of political science, uh, uh, uh pretty regularly that that's really outstanding. But the bottom line is, is that that's been a real connection for me. Although at the same time, I know that I can't I can't start getting arguments with people on Facebook. I can't I can't take things offensively on Facebook because to be honest, um I could see where that personally would be uh, a mental health challenge for me, right? Like it would it would eat at me in ways that I don't think are very healthy, but at the same time, I Facebook and Instagram are really my connection with probably a couple hundred people, right? I stay connected to people. A lot of former students are good examples of this, the good they're doing in the world. I know about it because of these social media platforms. So, I mean, the the Facebook discussion will continue, but I, it's interesting because when we first started talking about this a couple of years ago, this was uh, post the 2016 election, it just seemed like the Facebook wasn't really interested in changing their model. But I tell you, you cut, you cut the payment off, right? Which is what's happening right now with these boycotts. And there's been a number of local businesses in Missoula that have announced that they'll continue to add, they'll continue to announce things on Facebook, but they're going to cut off the advertising dollars. That's, that is going to create some kind of change. Hopefully it's a change for the better, but you know, we'll see, right? Absolutely. 
All right. Hey, can we talk about Apple a little bit? I please. I've been waiting. I I, I was I, glad to have a break last week, right? Like I, I love our podcast, but uh, you know, usually in an era of traveling, we would have every sixth or seventh week off as we traveled. We haven't had that during the COVID era, so I, I was thankful to take a little bit of a break. But I really wanted to hear your thoughts on the WWDC, a, a keynote, I'm not sure if we're calling it that, but the highly produced announcements that Apple put out uh, uh, last week. Absolutely. Well, one of the benefits, because these, I think it actually happened, didn't it, on a Tuesday? Um, you know, it gave the opportunity, make sure that I'm not going to play this. Um, sorry. Uh, gave the, gave me the opportunity to watch the whole thing, of course, as well as digest a lot more news from other people. Um, I'm going to put the, the link that's in the show notes to, uh, Marquez Brownlee's video. Um, he is a fantastic YouTuber, by the way. Yep. And, and he put up a good video, which I don't have in the show notes, but it was like just a few back, you know, talking about the uh, moment that we are and whether we should step outside. Like he's a, he's a tech tech geek, right? But he, he also happens to be black. And anyway, he, he had a very good video about that. This video though is his WWDC 2020 impressions widgets in the great transition. And um, as he points out, man, what a phenomenally produced video, right? If you want to take a look at, I mean, Apple has set the, set the bar. I mean, Steve Jobs, you know, back from the beginning announcements of iPhone and other things, I think, as far as keynote, the ways you use uh, presentation, visually, just, you know, so many different things that Apple has done well. It is a phenomenally produced video. Uh, very visually engaging, moving from location to location, lots of different people. Um, so, uh, you know, one of, one of the biggest things, um, well, and I put this in as a separate link. Uh, this is, this is kind of, it may seem like a small thing, but, um, Apple's going to start letting us port Chrome extensions to Safari. Um, we know that, um, there are, you know, really positive benefits to the iPad OS, which is its own thing now, separate from regular iOS that you use on your phone and, um, you know, full blown, uh, full blown, uh, Google Docs, not, you know, limiting you to just the, the app version that's kind of a, a little disabled handicapped uh, version. I, maybe that's the, politically incorrect way to say that, but whatever. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's really kind of a game changer. Um, the biggest announcement, of course, there's all these different, you know, they, they had to cover all their operating systems and, and all their platforms. The biggest thing is uh, just like it was big when Apple moved from OS 9 uh, to, to OS 10, and then they moved from the PowerPC processor and chip to the Intel processor, we're witnessing this again. And they say it's going to be a transition that's going to take about two years but Apple is switching to its own silicone. And what that means is the same chips, and, and I'm running a, an iPhone, you know, iPhone 8 here. If we got Rachel's phone, she's sporting the iPhone 11 Pro with the A13 Bionic, uh, which is incredibly fast. But these chips are so fast now that they can actually, you know, run full-on operating systems. One of the things that's going to mean is that you're going to get to natively run a um an iPhone an iOS app right on your your Mac and a shout out I don't have this one in the show notes yet but I listen to periodically a podcast called Mac Power Users and I'll uh, put up a link to their uh, Mac OS Big Sur episode which I've only started 
But they're predicting almost without doubt that we're going to see Apple bring touch to the Mac. And we're, we're seeing the merging of these worlds. So just like it was a big thing and people complained when Apple took the floppy disk away, right? Oh, my gosh, they don't have any floppies in the iMac. And then they took the CD-ROM away. You know, Apple is always looking to the future. And so part of how they're looking to the future mm-hmm. is they're seeing the ways in which uh, a, an ecosystem for um, computers that is much more secure that has, uh, and this is an interesting, you know, con- well, there, there's still gatekeeping that happens within the Android world, but an app store based model where updates can be pushed out much more readily and uh, where the, the uh, operating system itself is much more secure because it's been, you know, designed from the ground up with much more security in mind. I mean, I'll, I'll say that I, I hope we're, we're still going to have options to run ad blockers and things like that, right? I mean, there's, there's things that when I turn on my Apple TV or I'm watching something on my phone, I'm like, oh man, I got to watch that ad. And when I'm on my computer, I don't have to. But yeah, that was the biggest thing. And, uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch, uh, even, you know, watch the first 15 or 30 minutes of, of the keynote, it really is a phenomenally produced video. And there's a whole lot that they end up, you know, talking about, of course, with all their different products. Last thing I'll say is this is significant because WDC, WWDC has been a big ticket event. And, you know, journalists will, you know, lament that they're not having this face to face experience, which is kind of the highlight of their year. I would never be able to go there. I mean, it just wouldn't be part of of what I would do. This year, it's free for everybody, right? You could just download the WWDC, I think the developer app, and then stream any of the sessions. And so another example of how COVID has changed things and it has given us more information, you know, more opportunities to have access. Uh, But what a phenomenal opportunity for folks to be able to have, you know, that same kind of direct opportunity to hear from developers. Uh, And I'll, I guess I'll say one more thing. Apple does a great job of courting its developers. That's an interesting thing. You know, when you look at the ways that the the app store and the ecosystems between Android and and Apple are different, I think Apple does a good job of, uh, frankly, uh, you know, waiting to adopt, you know, certain kinds of features because, you know, Android does that, does that stuff faster. Uh, they kind of go to school on Android and, and try to do that as well or better, but they do a good job with their developer community. And so it was, uh, it's great. It was great to see. And, uh, I think it, it brought trans, it was transformational in the way that it allowed even more people to be able to have access to all of that content. So Dr. Neifer, are you, going to be looking for an Apple Silicon device to add to your army. Because folks, if you didn't know it, Dr. Neifer could open probably a, a very significant computer museum and not even like museum of old, but just the museum of today. So if you needed, yeah, some kind of secondary income, once you can socially mix, you know, it could be the, the Neifer, uh, the, the screen fest of Missoula in the Neifer home. I will mention the uh, early day iPods I've been refurbishing at home for fun the last couple of weeks that I think I mentioned several weeks ago. But I don't know if I'm going to go back to Apple, but I'll tell you there are three things that were very interesting to me that that kind of caught my eye. I watched the whole thing, and part of it is I like a good Apple show. I mean, no one's going to be a good of a speaker as Steve Jobs. He is epically one of the best sales pitch people that's ever existed in tech. But I think they may have actually stumbled onto something because it, it did feel 
maybe too produced, but it was highly produced and uh, really well done and clean and clear. And uh, you actually got a bit of a tour of the uh, the new Apple campus, which I thought was kind of cool, a part of the uh, the presentation. But a couple things that, that that I noted. The first one is that I, if if Apple pulls it off, and you know, spoiler alert, they will pull it off. The fact that they're having another major architectural transition in their operating system and, 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 and do that successfully is going to be amazing. And I don't blame them for leaving the Intel uh, architecture. It makes me sad a little bit because from the standpoint of one thing I liked about uh, a Mac is that you could, you could dual boot Windows, which is an advantage because there's a lot of weird programs that would never make it over to Macs. And by the way, that's something they didn't officially announce, but as part of the keynote, but as part of the sessions, they did note that Bootcamp, which was the software that allows the dual booting, would be depreciated. But all the early data suggests, and the demos they completed, and some of the workshops that were reported on from WWDC from developers, was that these chips are going to be shockingly fast but just sip on batteries, which means that you could get a, 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 a Mac, uh, MacBook Air that has a 25 hour battery, right? Remember, you know, like the iPad, you know, there's a lot of space to pour batteries inside of, 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 of these, uh, these, uh, uh, laptops. And, you know, the, the CPU or the CPUs and motherboards inside of laptops are actually very small, especially in Apple devices. They're tiny. And there are some interesting things that, that this could introduce, but it could create ultimately a much, 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 much better experience for those that are mobile warriors and need, you know, 10, 15 hour battery life. The other thing, and I did put an article about this that goes into some detail here. Um, I think Apple is reaching for the stars on privacy. And, uh, you know, they always have been really more privacy focused than anyone else because frankly, they don't need to sell your data for profit because they make a heck of a lot of profit on hardware. So they don't really need uh, to monetize your data. But there was a really great article. It was from Inc., uh, about how iOS 14 is going to be really privacy focused, uh, 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 even more so, uh, 12 and 13 were both advertised as really important steps forward in privacy, but they're going to force app developers in essence um, to uh, uh, to report to you as the end user and have uh, privacy information available so that if they're using their data for something that, uh, uh, well, for any reason really, they have to report that back to you. And um, you're starting to see some evidence that Apple's position in the marketplace is starting to impact other people's use of data. Uh, Microsoft and Google have both really upped their games in the last 24 months as regards to this. I know the big announcement last week, and I, and I can't remember if I put an article in here on this. I think I probably did, that Google location data is now by default not saved permanently and is deleted after X number of months or X number of years. I will probably continue to save mine in perpetuity because of my travels. I like that for that reason only, right? It's, it, it allows me to help remember, uh, you know, trips that I took, but the bottom line is, is that there is some uh, extraordinary advantages uh, uh, to Apple leading the marketplace here because it really ups the game for everyone else. Um, other than that, I mean, I, I did laugh 
a little bit because they're all excited about widgets on iPhones. And I did have an Apple person four or five years ago make fun of me because one of the reasons why I liked Android was that I do like widgets. It's a very useful feature in the Android operating system. And it, he, he blew off. He called it cute. Right. And it's funny because, uh, no, no one has the right to brag about, uh, uh, on the Apple versus Android uh, piece about stealing because both these operating systems regularly steal from each other. Uh, 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 ignoring the, the first days and, and who might have invented what, once they were both stable operating systems, every year a new feature pops up on one or the other that's borrowed from the other. So uh, that that's neither here nor there. But I, I thought overall it was a very compelling two hours. And, um, you know, Apple's not the market leader in in, in really, anything, right? But they don't have to be because they have people that are willing to shell out premium prices for devices because they have an extremely well-articulated ecosystem. And if you go back, for those that are Apple scholars know that, that uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was famous for drawing uh, four-part grids on, um, on, on whiteboards saying that there are devices, there are four devices that fit into these four grids and, um, and, and before, well before the iPad was the iPad. He was planning on a device that would fill that space, plus a phone, plus a laptop. And I would argue the watch is the fourth uh, grid now. Um, and um, that's something that you know that continues to evolve uh, with some pretty extraordinary stuff. So again, I'm not an Apple fanboy anymore. I'm more a tech fanboy. I love all the ecosystems equally, but I thought it was just a really well done and extremely compelling narrative from Apple. One more thought is that there are some uh, vocabulary words that they mentioned that belie what you're talking about with privacy, onboard machine learning, you yeah. know, talking about where the data is stored. And, and I'm very glad for Apple to be pushing that. You know, I, um, what's it called? Jumbo. There's this app I, I, a couple months ago mentioned as a geek of the week and I installed it on my iPad and it, it goes into your Facebook and Google accounts and other things. And it will if you want to, and you can change the settings, delete stuff. I mean, like, I actually want my YouTube history. Like, I love the recommendation engine, and you can really, you know, have that work for you. Um, it's, you know, this it's a very interesting thing to think about. What do I want, you know, saved in terms of my own data? It's certainly a good thing to have charge of it and to have that be a little less opaque and be able to, you know, know what's being saved and have choices about it. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was it was good stuff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Microsoft. Uh, I'll let you, uh, you know, there, there was a little Minecraft announcement this right. last week. What's going on there? Well, uh, the Minecraft team, remember, uh, like many of, of Microsoft's greatest tools, Minecraft was a separate entity before they were purchased by Microsoft, and they've really gone all in on Minecraft for education. But uh, they announced uh, two days ago that uh, Minecraft on Chromebooks uh, um, is here and they are going to, and I see that I put a weird link in, in uh, a okay. weird link. I picked up the direct one there to the, Minecraft oh, okay. Box. Sorry. I, I, okay. uh, yep. Yeah. So the, um, 
that they were going to put uh, uh, Minecraft on Chromebooks. They're doing a beta test right now, and you can sign up for the beta to be able to do it. We actually reported on on this podcast, this was probably a year and a half, two years ago, that when regular Minecraft was first available by an Android app download, that we uh, uh, you know talked about that. In fact, I downloaded, bought it that night while I was on the show and was able to play with it. But the Education Edition, which offers a lot of features that are not in existence on the, the regular consumer version of Minecraft, uh, it was not available, but uh, they are they are doing a beta test. They hope to roll it out this fall. What's interesting about that is that uh, there's a lot of districts that have questioned Chromebook purchases because of the energy around mine, Minecraft for education. Because, uh, well, I've seen pretty meaningful articulations of Minecraft in the classroom K through higher ed, right? I think there's a lot of compelling use cases for Minecraft in the classroom. Uh, I think Apple was very wise to purchase Minecraft when they did and uh, uh, kind of uh, refashion it as a almost a, a universal educational tool, but extremely great news that uh, for, for districts that are in the Google ecosystem and yet could find some value in Minecraft for education. It's a really wonderful uh, 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 development for this. And if you're in a district, please sign up for the beta and download this to a couple of your Chromebooks um, to see how that might work in in both uh, its function on low-end Chromebooks. Although I will say that you don't need a lot of guts to to run Minecraft. It's part of the beauty of the system is that the graphics are blocky and not particularly taxing um, on CPUs. And so uh, you can usually run them on relatively modest hardware, but, you know, let's, let's give Microsoft a good, uh, uh, you know, a, a good beta test here. So this rolls out smoothly in the future. Little chat uh, questions. Good from Peggy uh, asking about the privacy settings. Uh, she asked, why did Google make the decision uh, to just auto delete location data and search history by default for new users only? Um, I actually did read the, the blog post they had. Um, they didn't want to make that change for people uh, who are existing users because, oh, right. my God, where'd my data go? But they want to give that option. So the option is available for everybody. And, of course, remember, everyone, Google for Education is treated differently than the consumer, right. you know, Gmail. And that's that's a very important you know distinction to keep in mind as well. So I think it's good that, that Google made those changes. Well, we've got Chromebooks, especially in our middle school. Uh, we're going to have a few more iPads. Those announcements are going to be uh, forthcoming from our administration in terms of our plans for next year. But I am thrilled. I had some students on iPads <clears throat> in the elementary edition of our Minecraft camp. Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled that, you know, if, uh, if you've got a Chromebook, you'll be able to have that opportunity as well. So what else would you like to pick up, sir? We can probably do a few more articles and then the top of the hour will be here. Do you want to do that CRISPR article that you picked up? The Nature Yeah, and, and mostly because I just want to hear your, your views on this. Uh, we've talked about CRISPR a number of times in the podcast, and, and Wes is a bit more uh, uh, well-read in CRISPR than I am. But, but for those of you that um, are, are, are haven't listened to our extensive coverage on CRISPR, uh, CRISPR is a gene editing tool that essentially allows you to make tiny changes in, in DNA uh, through, I think they're called SNPs, right, is the, the, the uh, verbiage they use for that. And um, uh, there was a series of studies that this is reported in Nature on June 25th that say that there is um, uh, uh, a concern that uh, editing in human embryos, and we talked about the fact that there was some uh, off-the-books research in China involving CRISPR editing of genes uh, to try to prevent passing on of, of, of HIV from uh, mother to child. Uh, there are some studies that say that reshuffling uh, DNA 
has extraordinary safety concerns and actually wreaks uh, mayhem on, is their headline, wreaks mayhem um, on um, uh, chromosomes. So I guess, Wes, I, you were actually warning about this early on in the CRISPR movement that, you know, that, that we need a strong ethical foundation for doing research here because we're really messing with the, the literal foundation of the universe. Right. But any thoughts about, you know, some research confirming the fears of, of, of early CRISPR, uh, CRISPR uh, critics? Well, whether it is uh, regarding, you know, CRISPR and genomics and, and uh, biology, uh, biological modifications, or it's even talking coding, all of us need to be thinking about whether what we're doing or we're designing is for good and what those, con- not only the intended consequences could be, but what the unintended consequences. So, yeah, this, um, my understanding of how CRISPR works is, you know, they snip out the part of, of the genome and then there are enzymes that come in to do this repair. Um, but it is, it's so early days with this kind of thing that it is, um, you know, we almost always have unintended consequences that happen from, you know, especially seismic uh, changes that technology brings. Um, I think that, you know, it's very important for us to be wary and to proceed cautiously. And, um, you know, even when we're talking about, oh, aren't mosquitoes terrible? How can we get rid of mosquitoes? I mean, uh, there's a children's book called The King, the Mice and the Cheese. And actually, I love that book. And my wife, we searched high and low in all kinds of used bookstores. She, she actually gave it to me for like my birthday a few years ago. But basically, the king has mice and he's upset. And so he gets cats and then they get dogs, get rid of the cats. And it's a cycle and elephants come and they're all, you know, all these bad things. And they finally bring a mice back, mouse back to get rid of the elephant. But it's, you know, this chain of events that happens. And so, I think we uh, we need to proceed so cautiously and so carefully. I read in National Geographic a number of years ago, well, not that long ago actually, that you know what we're what we're understanding today about the brain is a little bit like looking at the Earth from a geosynchronous satellite. I mean, we're seeing weather patterns and broad things, but we're not seeing the granular detail and understanding things at that that kind of a level. So these um, technologies are phenomenally powerful and we need to to be cautious. And we also need to be talking about them in mainstream circles. We don't need to just relegate it to only the doctors because, you know, artificial intelligence, genomics, gene editing, these kinds of, of issues uh, have very, very important ethical implications. And so irrespective of where we might uh, have come from or be today with regard to faith, um, you know, there's ethical issues that we can we can draw on, on different traditions um, to, uh, you know, have a foundation for how we make those decisions. The bottom line is we need to make sure that we're we're not doing harm and that we're, you know, using these incredible powers for good and that we're also proceeding cautiously. And that's something there's a book I'm uh looking at to maybe use in my Sunday school class next year. But the author's basically saying, you know, some people talk about inevitability. Oh, it's all inevitable. It's all going to happen. You know, China's going to do it. No, that's not how it works. I mean, we ban chemical weapons in the world for a reason. And, you know, there have been a few incidents, but by and large, I mean, governments and, and the agreements that we've made and the enforcement mechanisms we've put in place have been effective in preventing some of the horrors that were experienced by millions of people in, in World War One and World War Two. And so we need to take a look at 
what kinds of pre- prevent, you know, regimes are, are needed, uh, because this gets directly into, to technology as well. Drones, killer robots. I was teaching in Yukon public schools in 2013, 2015. There was a global, you know, United Nations convened, um, uh, conference on should we ban killer robots? And it sounded like something out of a science fiction you know, movie or something, but I mean, it was an argue, it was a discussion happening five years ago. The stuff our son did in, in college and the kinds of things that he's potentially going to be doing, you know, he's working on the space station right now for uh, a contractor. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's real stuff. The technology is here today and we, we need to be encouraging everybody to think about the ethics of this, not just the, how do I do it? The, the technical side. So, well, it is three minutes after the hour, according to my clock, and we have probably, you know, covered a record minimum number of uh, articles today. Uh, wow. we're, just gonna, we're just gonna have to do it again next week, Jason. I think there's, there's no getting around it. So yeah, book it. I think we need to, I mean, there, there are lots of other things, some cool Chromebook news this week. There's some additional Microsoft and Apple things we could go over. And then there's a whole thing about privacy that I think could be a, a interesting thing to talk about, but um, you know, we are not, um, uh, we're not going to get to it this week. So next week on the Antic Situation Room. So let's do our Geeks of the Week. What would you like to share, Dr. Fryer, as your Geek of the Week? Well, and I'm always, you know, seeming to just go overboard because I just can't do one thing. Sometimes I do, but really quick, Google Classroom, draw or annotate on student work. How did I freaking miss this? Uh, caught this in a in a, this MSON conference this week. Google Classroom, you know, if you've got your iPad, so easy to open up a Google Doc and it lets you draw right on it and makes a PDF that it sends straight back to the kid. Wow. I have no idea how I've missed that. Maybe it's pretty new, but that's a link I got in there from Apple. Then this really great Google Meet Tips and Tricks by Carrie Lopez. Phenomenal. Uh, they've got an extension for meeting rooms now, which I think is one of the best features of Zoom that Google Meets has not had. And so there's a number of really fantastic extensions uh, that I'm eager to try out. And the last thing, we've talked about the, the challenges of of sharing a video over video conferencing. And one of the participants in a session yesterday mentioned Cast, K-A-S-T, and the Cast app, um, they advertise it as watch parties made easy. Uh, anyway, it's uh, evidently, you know, a way that teachers have been having some success in sharing a video simultaneously with students who are working remotely. So wow. those would be my Geeks of the Week. And I got a quick Microsoft one. Um, I, I don't really need this because, to be frank, I don't ever throw – I don't ever put anything in, in the trash. Uh, when I'm working on Windows or a Mac, I always keep a folder on my desktop called Working, and I literally don't empty it. Like, I just keep going, and I throw it – we'll throw it in the cloud since I have unlimited storage with my school account. And then, you know, I, I just – I never find a reason to throw documents away. Um, but if you're on a Windows machine, there is some voodoo magic that you can utilize uh, to – uh, to undelete files. There's plenty of apps to do that, but Microsoft now has their own undelete uh, uh, app. And so if you throw something in the trash and empty the trash and you can't get to it, consider downloading Microsoft's app as opposed to one of the third-party ones. Of course, you know, undelete isn't unlimited because as your computer recycles those uh, uh, spaces on the hard drive, it will probably overwrite the past file. 
But if you are ever in the need of something uh, that undeletes, the native Microsoft undelete app is available on the Microsoft Store. I thought that was an interesting piece, should you find that useful. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the Internet? I am W. Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. If you're interested in media literacy, I set up a new website, uh, which is just a, a a CNAME mapped Google site, which is medialiteracy.westfryer.com. And that's where I am sharing media literacy projects, groups, book clubs, cool stuff. And I've just kind of decided to aggregate stuff over there. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I heard a rumor that you did something for this NCCE group. What's up with that? Well, uh, I am the tech-savvy ministry in residence at NCC. Blog.ncc.org is our blog, and we are taking applications now. They've opened up a call for proposal for NCC Seattle, March 2020. Of course, that's a long time from now, and there are uh, uh, discussions going on, like every conference, of whether it will be face-to-face or online, but strongly consider putting something in there. It's really a wonderful conference with wonderful people. It draws both a regional and a national audience, uh, www ncc.org. Um, and I'm on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, in fact, I'm working really hard the last couple of weeks to maybe start following some people that are in other discussions other than technology and education. I'm particularly interested in equity discussions in education. I'm also starting to re-engage in the social studies community, uh, hearkening back to my days in the classroom. I don't know, maybe I'll end up back there sometime uh, before my career is done. But, sir. I'm, I'm teaching Spanish. Next year, too. No kidding. Yeah, they asked me to pick up two sections of introductory fifth grade Spanish. Hola! So I'll be doing six sections uh, for uh, yeah, media and, and uh, digital literacy for fifth and sixth grade, and two sections of Spanish. So, Senor Friar in the house. Vamos a practicar mucho en español, or well, talk yeah. a lot in Spanish. All I can do is order cerveza in Spanish. But That's this helpful. is not about Spanish. This is the Etic Situation. We are a once-a-week podcast for Western and I like to shoot the breeze about tech and sometimes about other stuff, too. You can download our podcast anywhere uh, podcasts are aggregated. Uh, we're in all the apps. In fact, uh, I, I, I regularly try out other podcasting apps because I love podcasting so much. And the bottom line is we're everywhere now. If you can't find us there, though, go to our website, www.edtechsr.com, where you can download tiny copies of the podcast. You can also go to edtechsr.com. Uh, dot, com slash links and get all of the links we talked about during the week, which this week was, uh, you know, we left, uh, several behind that we'll probably make it in next week's show. Um, and of course, you can find us on Twitter at edtechsr. Also check out our YouTube channel. You can see past episodes and see us, uh, if you like the visual notion of that piece. And of course, we encourage you to watch live. We're on Facebook live. We're on YouTube live every week. Check us out on Twitter to find out when we go live and you too can hang out with Peggy George in our chat room. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Bienvenidos y hasta luego.